The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. Yes, we are surprised we made it to day two as well. I am Steve Dace. Welcome to day two of our partnership here, CRTV and The Blaze. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. And we're continuing our first week of shows here for the new audience that's joining us uh, each weekday. Uh, and it's sort of your freshman orientation, if you will, a little Steve Day show one-on-one. And, and you know, yesterday we looked an awful lot at uh, some of the more fundamental philosophical and theological uh, narratives that to drive our show each day and, and the way we do things and, and why we do them the way we do. Today, we're going to get a little more political and a little more practical. We're going to take those narratives that we talked about yesterday, gentlemen, and we are going to now strategically apply them. You're going to get a crash course on sort of, uh, I, I guess I would call it a compilation of everything I've learned uh, working uh, in political activism for a decade, uh, whether it's as a candidate, recruiter, consultant, uh, activist, etc. cetera. Uh, and these are going to be my 10 commandments of political warfare. We'll get into those as the show goes on today. But first, we begin with a rundown of what's happened since we've been away. What happened while we were away brought to you by Pocahontas. Five things we learned from Elizabeth Warren's DNA test by Chris Eliza. She's running in 2020. She's running in 2020. She wants to show Democrats she won't be swift-boated. Four, Trump's attacks were hurting her. Five, this doesn't solve everything. Quote, okay, so the DNA test suggested there's a very strong likelihood that Warren is somewhere between 164th and 1-1024th Native American. Oh, my. And that's all I have to say about that. Reports yesterday indicated that Saudi Arabia is preparing to admit they killed journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi writes for the Washington Post and other outlets. He disappeared from the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, October 2nd. And now some actual good news. Remember that fire department chief from Atlanta named Kelvin Cochran? He was fired from his job because of a brief mention of the Christian sexual ethic in a book he wrote in his spare time. Well, now Atlanta is going to be paying him $1.2 million because a court found its handling of Cochran was unconstitutional. French President Emmanuel Macron said, quote, Present me the woman who decided being perfectly educated to have seven, eight, or nine children. We see you, Amy Coney Barrett. And that's what happened while we were away in two minutes or less. All right, several things we're going to touch on here in uh, the opening segment in response to Aaron's montage. One of them that we're not going to touch on, because one of the things you're going to learn about our show is unless we are fairly certain, I don't know how many things in this world you can be completely certain of, uh, Todd and Aaron, particularly in our current media environment where there's far more narrative casting than newscasting anymore. And that's just not on the left, but also plenty of that on the right. So when it comes to, you know, tragedies, we don't rush out with a hot take. And this frustrates management at places we work at sometimes, but okay, I, I, I will uh, put up with that because I'm not in, 
I know uh, everybody's in a hurry in our industry today to be wrong, but I'm not. I kind of like being right as often as I can. So we kind of let things develop. And there's just something more to this story of this journalist. I, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm, we're going to wait for some more details about what truly happened here and who this journalist may or may not be before we opine. You guys okay with that? Oh, yeah. So, so, so there, there's plenty of other things, though, that Aaron mentioned in his montage I want to talk about. And let's start with the Elizabeth Warren thing. So yesterday, all three of us expressed some level of frustration how this was the number one trending political topic uh, in the country yesterday. If we try to have, and most of it was strictly just of a trolling variety. And it's one of those stories that I don't that I think, you know, we, we talk on our show a lot that political Twitter is not America, right? I think it's about 70% of Americans have a Facebook account. And, you know, about a little more than half of those Americans, uh, it, their accounts are active on a regular basis. Only about a quarter of Americans have a Twitter account. Actually, it's about 30%. And then when you do the math of who's actually regularly active on Twitter, it's about a quarter of Americana. But the reason why Twitter ca- tends to carry more weight in, in our line of work is because there's a high concentration of uh, political activism that occurs via Twitter, but it's not, it's, it's usually political activism that is consumed by other political activists, much so, much more so than the country writ large. And, but it drives so much of the news that the country writ large sees, particularly with the way the president uses his Twitter account, which may indeed be a part of the conversation we're about to have here. Cause that reared its ugly head again this morning. But the Elizabeth Warren thing. When our side was just doing its clickbaity, own the libs trolling, I, I just wasn't interested in it. And that's really what was going on all morning long yesterday as we were coming in to do this show, right? They woke up from the weekend and said, okay, yeah, light yeah, the fires. Yeah, and and I get it. You know, we, we got to make a living. And when the other side puts their head in a in the stockade and, and it's low-lying fruit and they say, swing away, it's kind of hard to resist that temptation. I understand that on some level. I'm human. But- in the the course of the middle of the afternoon yesterday, just as we were wrapping this up and going home, I don't know if you guys noticed this, and maybe you just hated the story and thought it was so shallow, you just stopped following it. But I actually started getting more interested in it because I noticed that the worm was kind of turning here. And and Aaron, uh, maybe you were even alluding to it in, in choosing to use Chris Saliza at the Washington Post. I think that's how his last name's pronounced. Yep. And and he's one of their chief uh, Democratic, I'm sorry, uh, political uh, analysts, uh, Freudian slip uh, for the Washington Post and uh, the fact that he can't even attempt to use the pages of WAPO to try and clean up this mess that Elizabeth Warren just dropped all over herself. Uh, we saw a tweet just as we were finishing the show yesterday, uh, Obama's 2012 campaign manager or his deputy campaign manager from 2012 fired off a tweet blasting Elizabeth Warren saying, why are you distracting from our messaging with this clear self for un- self, uh, you know, uh, unenforced error that you've just put on yourself, self-inflicted wound and we're off our messaging and we're, we got to, why are you forcing us to talk about this? I noticed lefty political Twitter and lefty political media was pretty split. It was not unified in defending her and pushing back against us. There were plenty of people on their side of the aisle that thought uh, that this was a major mistake that she made and she got them off of message. Did you guys notice this exact same thing? Not only did I notice that and then add on top of it the fact that Cherokee Nation 
flat yeah, they, out came out. Yes, they, they came out uh, and essentially publicly rebuked her in yes. the middle of the afternoon. Now, to be fair to those of you on, on our side who are like, this is a bigger story than you guys are letting on, we should note that I think it's Harvard University. Did they not give her a professorship standing? It's either professorship yes. or fellowship standing, one of those two, on the basis of her Native American heritage because she checked one of their intersectionality boxes, Correct. right? So this is more than, this isn't just, you know, George or George O'Leary when he tries to become the football coach at Notre Dame, embellishes a line in a bio, and you're asking yourself, why does anybody care that a guy lied or embellished a bio? About, She's traded on this. Yes, about a football coach and what he did in the 1970s. Yes. What's that have to do with who he is the man today, right? Correct. You're right. She has traded on the political capital where this exactly. is concerned, and it has given her some academic standing at one of America's most illustrious institutions as a result yes. in order to give her some gravitas as a figure. And now with Democrats... Still polling relatively well, not as well as they were pre-Kavanaugh, but they're still polling pretty well. I mean, would you rather be polling where the Democrats are or the Republicans are right now if you were the Republicans? You'd rather be polling where the Democrats are. The Republicans aren't polling as bad as they were two weeks ago, but they're still not polling good. It's better, but it's not good, right? So it, we're, we're, less, we're what, two and a half weeks from the election, and she's dropping this self-owning bomb that is— and, and they at first were trying to defend her. And then I saw through the course of the day that, and I think maybe the Cherokee Nation thing had something to do with it, that it turned. And now she's done herself some damage with some people wearing her own uniform with this, it looks to me. Oh, for sure. And uh, this grew fascinating to me because this happened on the heels of the whole Kanye in the White House thing. And the left uh, very much lost traction uh, on, on that, on how overtly they needed uh, a black man to basically stay in his lane. And this is my whole point about the, the one who is dumbest last loses and, and and how progressives are so good at that now, game. Let me, let, me, let me clarify, for those who are, who are uh, new, if I guess you're we mentioned our, our new audience here at The Blaze alongside CRTV, Todd tried to convince me, the data analyst guy, nine months ago to throw out all the data and that this midterm election was going to be decided by whoever was dumbest last loses because it was a race to the bottom. It was a race of both sides essentially doing what they can to fire up the other side's base, like the president insulting a woman's looks on Twitter today, calling her horse face, Correct. for example. Okay. Right when his momentum's riding high, of course. Right. So let's, he, he jumps right on Twitter to find out, let me see, there might be seven or eight suburban women in America I haven't insulted yet that I'm trying to get to vote Democrat. And so like Trump jumps on Twitter today to try and flip those last few suburban women to vote Democrat. Is right. that what you're kind of talking about? Right. And so after a couple of months and I wanted to be about data and stuff, and then I finally just gave it up to Todd and agreed, you're right. This thing is going to be whoever makes the dumbest mistake at the very end will piss off enough of the other side's base to drive them out. And that's who will win the election. And that's what we mean by our official analysis of this election cycle on this show is whoever's dumbest last loses. Continue. And this goes to the point of what you said about how well you, most of America doesn't play uh, pay attention to, to Twitter, but not only the, 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 does it define the journalism cycle, but all of these politicals pay attention. And here, after all of that Kanye blowback, Warren and her handlers still decided to double down on racial identity politics. They can't help themselves. They consciously chose, they thought this was a winner in their hand. That pretty much describes progressivism writ large. There's a bunch of people out there, hey, let's light this campus on fire. That sounds like a winning strategy. Strategy. And most of America, even if they're not anything resembling a conservative or a Republican, look at that like, you know, I, I, I'm not a pyromaniac. I, I, I need, and even though this Trump guy's nuts, um, and well, 
and again, Steve points out that 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 analysis is in the dock once again. I mean, it's crazy versus crazy today as much or as better as ever before. I have a question. Sure. What what messaging did the Democrats get off of? Was it um, the believe all women, even if they falsely accuse their, you know, uh, some some dude? Uh, was it um, uh, Kanye West is a house N word for meeting with the president? Uh, what what message did they get off of with with is Elizabeth Warren? I think kind of to Todd's point, this is par for the course. Yes, with them. they they can't help themselves. I agree from this from this worldview. I mean, they can't. Um, and and yes, maybe there are some some more prescient thinkers out there on the left. You saw some of them yesterday. You mentioned Steve, who were like, "Whoa, wait, <laughs> yeah, you're you're not really helping yourselves here." Um, yeah, this is just that. This is this is who they are, and it it's a shame that you could ever think that people would lose to these type of people, but. but- you just mentioned the polling that, is not great sto- still, still for the Republicans, even post-Kavanaugh. That's clearly why you noticed it yesterday afternoon, and it got interesting yes. to you, because they weren't playing to type. Yes. They're the minority who said, whoa, come on, time well, out, TV yeah. time out here, because, let's discuss because this. Because I, I, I can't help. I, I, you know, Lord made me with an analytical mind, man. And it's just, uh, you know, and it, I'm, Lady Gaga's right. I was born this way. I can't help, I cannot help but analytically try and understand why are you, what you doing? (laughs) Right. And so I'm trying, because analytically, if you're, if you're thinking critically, even from their worldview, yeah, you're going to say to her, why are we dropping this two and a half weeks for the midterms? We drop this like on a Friday after Thanksgiving, you know what I'm saying? And the election is over and we're moving on to 2020. Why would we even risk tripping over our own phallus here? Um, and, and and give them even more momentum than they've had with backlash against us for the last couple of weeks because of Kavanaugh. And, 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 and you did see some of that sort of critical thinking on their side emerge in the afternoon, which is what right. finally made me interested in this story. But this goes to a term we taught our audience that's new on the blaze here on CRTV last week or yesterday. This is lucid insanity. This is what we mean by they can't help themselves. I think when people think of folks in a cult, you know, Amy and I just watched um, ABC did a fabulous special on the 40th anniversary of Jonestown uh, just a couple weeks ago. And Amy and I were T-voted it or DVR'd it and watched it the other night. And, you know, we really, we really only cared about the events leading up to the Kool-Aid because we kind of all know how it ends, right? Mm-hmm. Once you get to the ending, it's anticlimactic. You're, you're more interested about what was going on prior to that. And what's fascinating is, so this this U.S., this Democratic congressman flies in because his constituents are saying, hey, I'm losing loved ones to this cult. Something bad's going on in Ghana. Take a news crew there and use your diplomatic immunity to go to the country and, and get in because they won't let us see our family, right? They can't call them on the phone, et cetera, okay? And so literally this congressman is there for a few days in the camp. And, he's, and, and while he's there, on one side, he's watching people who want out are secretly coming up to him and saying, hey, we're trapped here. And on the other hand, he's watching people that are just going about their day, planting their crops, enjoying the weather, hanging out, you know, doing their doing the thing that they were doing there and, you know, and the nirvana that Jim Jones had promised them. And if, if you, depending on what part of the encampment you were in, this was all going on in the days and the day. Literally, as this congressman and the news crew is trying to escape from Jones's people and get back on their charter flight and get out of the get out of the country is literally when Jones is 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 getting the Kool-Aid ready for them to drink. And he had actually had them do several practice mass suicides for years 
just in case there was an invasion of the U.S. government because he was preaching divine socialism. It's, it's, it's fascinating. They were playing clips of his, of his sermons, and it's literally right out of social justice warrior Twitter that we see right now. I mean, the, the, the intersectionality, it's, it's, it is, I was kind of shocked ABC was being this honest about it, actually. I mean, if, 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 I, if we did a column, and maybe we should do that, Jim Jones sermon or SJW Twitter, you guess, Ooh, you would not, I promise, I'm not embellishing. Amy and I kept leaking each other. We were blown away. You would not know the difference. It's like Thanos was literally channeling, channeling Margaret Sanger's lines in, in, in the Avengers uh, Infinity War. And so what's fascinating is while he is plotting out this time, they're going to go through the drill. So they all think it's a drill because they've done this drill before. But this time they don't know that he has spiked it. All right. This time he means it. But they all think it's just another drill. While he's getting ready to kill all these people, essentially. They're, you know, unless they're the ones that want out, everyone else is kind of just doing the same thing they were always doing. And then, you know, when, when he got on the, the horn and, and, and rang the bell, literally, they are, right, that's what we do. We stop what we're doing and we do the mass suicide drill. I know it sounds nuts. This is the lucid insanity that cults produce. And I think you watched this yesterday with, with Elizabeth Warren. This is, the, this is the idolatry, the false religion of progressivism. This is why you can't show restraint. This is, this is why we ask ourselves, we're, we're asking ourselves, why, why would you do this? This strategically makes no sense. I don't understand what you were thinking. You know why? Because they weren't thinking, guys. Right? Thinking, the critical thinking's out. All right? So... They, they, this is the mob outside of Lot's house and it, 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 it just can't be satiated and they don't know what to do other than just like Danny DeVito when one flew over the cuckoo's nest, hit me, hit me, hit me. That's all they do. That's, they just sit there in the asylum and just say, hit me all the time. And, and they're not capable of having any, any form of, of argument back and forth because they've been convinced of the rightness of their side of the argument and political correctness gives them a, an insulation from having to entertain any critical arguments. They just call those people racist, misogynist, homophobic mis- bigots. And then when there's any pushback at all, you see, as you saw with Elizabeth Warren yesterday, it falls apart. And I think your analysis applies directly to what Aaron mentioned about uh, former Atlanta Fire Chief Calvin Cochran. Steve's got this uh, great analogy that he often uses, uh, whereas, you know, when he takes his car into the shop and, and get the brakes fixed, you know, he's not asking what the race, gender, a trans identification, just can you fix my car? That mm-hmm. other stuff just isn't important. Can you fix my car? That is, it's turned on its head in Atlanta. I mean, do you want a guy that is a great leader of men, of the men who are con- going to come in and storm into the, the place that is burning down, put their lives on the line and get that? Or uh, is the fact that he wrote a book where he mentions that, you know, Something in the past that you may have heard of, men and women should get married, and that's the best uh, way to raise children and and develop a solid society. The fact that he broke that progressive shibboleth is means that is a high, higher in the hierarchy of needs than the fact that he's a good leader of men and can put out fires. I'm glad you segued there. So I, I've met Kelvin Cochran. There's more to the story than what was in Aaron's montage. So I'm, I met him two, uh, a little more than two years ago. Now, the first thing I did when I formally joined the Ted Cruz for president campaign is uh, Cruz had a rally here in Des Moines. And it was to use his position as a candidate 
to force the media to cover the bake the cake bigot stuff that they wanted. Remember, I know it seems weird because this has become like a daily debate in the country for the last couple of years. But prior to essentially Kim Davis, the media, the mainstream media pretended like this stuff wasn't happening. Right. Like they wouldn't cover these stories. Like you would only find out about Aaron and Melissa Klein going on in Oregon from like Life Site News or CR Conservative Review or The Blaze entities on our side. This was this stuff wasn't getting written about in the New York Times, CNN. They wanted to pretend these stories weren't That's happening. That's just a local story. Yeah, Steve. Yes. And so Cruz used his presidential campaign as a platform because he's got he, you know, he's one of the front running candidates. And so he's got tons of media following everywhere he goes and everything he does, every event he has, they have to cover. And so he used that his candidacy as a platform to do a massive event that brought in Baron L. Stutzman and Aaron and Melissa Klein. And I host, I helped to host a roundtable where all of these original people that the media wanted to pretend that this had not happened to them. They'd not lost their jobs over their religious beliefs. We're all on the panel that I hosted, and one of them on that panel was Kelvin Cockrum. And what you should know about him is Kelvin is a Democrat. Kelvin was essentially named, uh, for lack of a better description, it's kind of an honorary title. It's not like a cabinet post, you know, but it's still in, in the field of fire prevention. It's, it has some esteem. He's, he was essentially named the fire prevention version of the Surgeon General by President Obama. He was, he was literally given the, the honor and distinction of National Fire Chief. Which is, you know, again, it's 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 not an official position, but it's that's a nice thing to put in your resume because of of the work he had done running the Atlanta Fire Department had been he was nationally recognized. And all he had to do, so here he is, he's a Democrat, he's black, he's in Atlanta, which is a long time Fulton County is a long time. Democratic stronghold, uh, liberal stronghold in the South. He had been essentially knighted by President Obama. I mean, that's a lot of street cred, guys, don't you think? He's checking a lot of boxes. And then he said, oh, by the way, I think the Lord says that the best way to get down and to get busy is to do it with the woman you're married to at the time. In In a book he wrote on his own time, that was meant to be a private mentoring men's Bible study for young men that he was mentoring in his church. That was predominantly black, by the way. And so the minute he said, the minute he told the, told the young men under his charge, the minute he said to him, I, I think you be, I think you're going to find that, that the sex is better and safer, uh, and less risky if you wait to get down until you're married. It was all of a sudden like, dude, he might as well have been, uh, white. He might as well have been Ralph Reed. He might as well have <laughs> been Jerry Falwell Jr. Like they, he wasn't black anymore. He wasn't a Democrat anymore. All of that is gone because he dared to say, I think the word of God is right about something that is a, as you put it, Todd, a shibboleth of the damned, basically. And, and he lost his job. Despite all of those other honors and all of those other distinctions, he lost his job. And now today they're going to have to pay him $1.2 million in a settlement, which I can promise you, because I know his story is a hell of a lot more money, guys that he was making being the fire department chief at the city of Atlanta. But I know our temptation is to say, well, that'll be a deterrent. We just kept on saying. Yeah, yeah. No. Because we're, we're, we're thinking critically. Like, it would deter us. Like, if we tried to politically bully somebody, right, and, and, the, and they sued us and the courts came to us and said, like, if Aaron decided that he was going to, you know, come to work every day with a, wearing a rainbow flag, and I, and I was going to be like, you know, I don't, we're not going to represent that. You're out of here. You're fired. And he, and he sued me 
And like six, seven figures of damages I got for suing him because of his beliefs, for firing him because of his beliefs. I'm going to think real long and hard. My board, my CFO, our attorney, <laughs> all right, CRTV, the blaze. <laughs> going to think real long and hard about, not, because that doesn't even count all the bad publicity we got for this, right? That's that's the punitive damages on top of this. I'm going to think really long and hard about going down that road and opening that latch of Pandora's box again because I'm looking at it critically. But the mob outside of Lot's house, they're not going to be deterred by this at all. Not not at all. They, they don't, I think, and I think that's what we don't understand or we're just beginning to understand. This is cultic behavior you're dealing with. And it's similar to, it doesn't matter how many women escape the compound, the cult leader never gives himself up, right? Think of, hey, when was the last time a cult leader gave himself up? Hale Bop, Jim Jones, David Koresh, North Korea. Just, just tell me when was the last time the cult leader walked out of the compound and said, you know what, snap, man. I've been really thinking about this and what we're doing here just ain't right. Can you think of a time? Anybody? Anybody out there? No? The cult leader, spoiler alert, cult leader never gives himself up, guys. Doesn't matter how many women and children escape the compound and blow the whistle, never gives himself up. And that's what you're dealing with here. It won't matter how, it wouldn't have mattered if Kelvin Cochran got a $10 million settlement, $100 million. And it won't matter if, if 100 more Kelvin Cochrans get million-dollar settlements. If you want to know what you're up against, you know, the, the, the update, it's not a, it, I, it's not a remake. It's a sequel, right? The new Halloween movie is like a sequel to the original, like 40 years later. Am I, is that what I, it's coming out this week? Yeah. Okay. You don't know. I don't. This right. is yeah, it's, I think it is a sequel, not an update. In the original Halloween movie, back when, I, you know, we were five years old, Todd, the, under, the greatest underrated, maybe the greatest underrated character actor of our time, Donald Pleasance, goes on this rant about Michael Myers. You can find the clip on YouTube. I used to use it as a drop in my old radio show. He cannot be contained. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be killed. That, I mean, it's just this epic rant. Like Michael Myers, the serial killer, is like this force of nature. Doesn't matter how many bullets you put in him. Doesn't matter. You can stab him. You can fry. He's like, he's like shrimp gumbo, fry it, saute it. You can't stop him. All right? And that's, that's the mindset you're dealing with here. And so they won't be deterred by paying out the money for Kelvin Cochran, probably because taxpayers got to pay that anyway, you know, and they'll just print some more fake money and move on. You're dealing with this level of behavior. And that's why mere political tactics won't, won't win. You have to understand the spiritual and moral component that's at stake here, but then you need to have the, the smart, wise political tactics that will put you in position to confront the opponent that you're up against. And we're going to spend a good deal of time uh, for the next couple of hours or for the rest of the, uh, the couple of hours left on our show here talking about those 10 commandments of political warfare. And they are, they are specifically devised and structured to frame arguments and put on the defensive, the progressive mindset that we are up against. And you can't shame people that don't believe in shame. You, 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 you have to create the circumstances by which you're, you're literally, I've used this analogy before, and they, they, their cult teaches not to get involved in politics, so like none of them are watching right now. But like when the Jehovah's Witness guy comes to your door and you, you tell him who Charles uh, Tazzy Russell was and... 
who the watch the, where the Watchtower Society actually came from. And then you'll ask questions like, if only 144,000 get saved, then, and there's three and a half million of you, why are you bothering me on a Saturday? Because it's already, it's already too late for me. I did the math and. Go go herd your own cats. Yes, yes. There's no more room at the end. We're done here. (laughs) Leave me alone. It's Saturday. I'm trying to sleep in. (laughs) All right. In fact, seems like you guys need to argue with each other. Some of you, some of you guys over at the Kingdom Hall are going to get a shot in for a shocking surprise. (laughs) Okay, when the time comes. All right. You guys are oversold. Do you want me to tell you on the flight? Oh, we are oversold by a few seats. We're overbooked. We need some people to voluntarily give up their spot. You guys are like, if there's three and a half million of you and only 144,000 are getting off this third rock from the sun, you guys are way oversold up there at the Kingdom Hall. It's that scene from The Dark Knight where he breaks the pool cue in half and hands it to one of these We're going to have tryouts. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. But when you do that, and I have done that before. When you do that, they will they literally, it's conditioning. It's, it's a brainwashing technique. They will they will blink a couple times and they will go right back to repeating the mantra and it will be like it uh, it doesn't register it doesn't compute they don't they they it's not that they won't get what you're trying to say it's that they can't you're dealing with a level of of spiritual idolatry that it's going to take more than just your normal if you want to if you want to beat these people in the political realm it's going to take more than just your normal political uh, tactic in order to defeat them. And we're going to get into that a lot more uh, as we proceed here today uh, on the Steve Dace Show. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast version on iTunes as well. Leave us a five-star review if you dig us. If you don't, just keep that to yourself. Thank you. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show here on The Blaze Live, powered by CRTV On Demand a little bit later on. Uh, I'm excited because uh, I'm a workout guy. I try to eat as healthy as I can. And man, if you think I'm a little chubby now, you should have seen me before I started taking that stuff seriously. You know, so got uh, the upper body workout in today. We homeschool. So I brought my uh, 11-year-old son, Noah, to the gym with me. He doesn't like it, but I call it PE and tell him it's part of his grade. So he puts up with it. (laughs) All right. So we started talking about this product yesterday. That's our first advertiser and sponsor here at The Blaze. And I'm like, I want to try this. So I'm I'm, going to send me a sample. I'm looking forward to it because, you know, there's a lot of fake news out there about superfoods, you know, um, you ever read the supplemental facts label though, when you take a look at that stuff? And a lot of times you're going to find it's made from extracts rather than the real food you want. You want food originally sourced as often as you possibly can, right? And so the goal of creating a real superfood specially designed to enhance your health and help you reach your full potential with that goal in mind. A team of top physicians gathered to form Brickhouse Nutrition, and they'd like to introduce you to their product, Field of Greens. It's the first real superfood, and the difference that sets it apart can be seen right on the bottle. If you look at the nutrition facts, you'll see it's not an extract. 
comes from the real thing. One scoop of Field of Greens is a full serving of real certified vegan, vegetarian, and USDA organic fruits and vegetables. You'd be shocked how few Americans... Get the recommended daily dose of fruits and vegetables each and every day. Coming complete with antioxidants as well. Uh, That's a daily clean green energy that fuels your body for a healthier and happier lifestyle. For a limited time offer, visit BrickHouseSteve.com. That's BrickHouseSteve.com. Use promo Steve to get 15% off of your first order. Promo Steve to get 15% off your first order. Again, at BrickHouseSteve.com. And experience today a better you tomorrow. All right, so what we were just describing politically, how do you deal politically? How do you set yourself up for victory against an unruly mob? How do you do that? Well, a few years ago, I wrote a book uh, called Rules for Patriots, How Conservatives Can Win Again. That was uh, endorsed by everyone from... uh, the current president of the United States to uh, Mark Levin and uh, kind of who's who of uh, conservative activists and leaders across the country. Uh, David Limbaugh, Rush's brother, wrote the foreword uh, to the book. And um, I did numerous speaking engagements and uh, talks around the country about the book the last few years as well. And it includes... It's, and it's really built around what I call the Ten Commandments of Political Warfare. And these Ten Commandments, you know, the backstory is we had a, a, here in my home state of Iowa, we had a promising young conservative that was running for uh, an important statewide office. And he was in a crowded field, kind of struggling to get traction. And he emailed me one day when I was doing local radio. And he, he said, hey, if, if you were running my campaign, basically, what advice would you give me? And I thought, you know, because when you do this, when you do what I do for a living, you're always looking, you're looking to what I call monetize content, meaning you're looking to take things that you already, you're, you're already seeing or observing and turn it into stuff that you can do radio shows and talk shows about because you're always looking for content. You're always looking for fresh things to talk about. And so I, I spent some time responding to him because I thought this might make one heck of a radio show to kind of lay this out, you know, kind of a, a manifesto for lack of a better description. And what I wrote, I gave him these 10 bullet points. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty, you know, 10 nice round number. It's got some historical significance around here, right? So we call them the 10 commandments of political warfare. And we're going to go through these throughout the course of the rest of the show today as we continue our orientation week here, Steve Day Show 101, here on The Blaze and CRTV. All right, now these are in an order. This is not random now. These are in the order of priority, just like the Ten Commandments are not random. There's a reason why the first commandment is God says I'm God, and the second commandment is don't go out and make fake gods. There's a reason that they're in the order that they're in, okay? That's, that's sort of Jehovah 101. This is sort of now conservative political activism 101, all right? Here's the first commandment, and it's first because it's the most important. Never, and I mean never, never trust Republicrats. Now, we got to define our terms, right, guys? What's a Republicrat? Well, everybody knows on our side what a rhino is, right? And that's a Chris Christie, that's a, you know, a 
Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins. We all know who those are. That they're essentially Democrats. That there weren't any more roster spots left in Maine um, or uh, you know New Jersey in Christie's case. And, and often the rhinos aren't in Republican strongholds like Alaska. Often they're in the Democratic ones. And it's because there, there was, they, they weren't frankly good enough to get on Team Dem. They, they couldn't make the, the team. They couldn't make the, uh, the varsity team there in that blue state. And so they had to become the star player on the JV. And that's, we all know what the rhino is, but the Republicrat is different. The Republicrat has figured out that if they say certain things, if they use certain buzzwords, certain terms, then you'll never look at their voting record. And they can literally get away with murder, or at least funding it all the time via Murder, Inc., Planned Parenthood. And these are the guys, they can get elected in Kentucky, like, say, Mitch McConnell, who figured out, you know, if I just walk into CPAC a few years ago, this happened, actually, the year I was launching the book at, this book, Rules for Patriots, at CPAC in 2014. Mitch McConnell comes in waving an AR-15. Which, you know, guys, I'm sure he's got, you know, a whole closet full of those at his brownstone there in suburban D.C., you think? No? I'm sure Mitch, I'm sure cocaine Mitch and Elaine, when they're done after a day slaving over K Street donation receipts, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure he call. I'm sure he texts her, honey, I'll meet you at the shooting range. Bring your AR-15. Now, I'm sure that happens. Never. Okay? But see, these guys have figured out. If I just use, if I just say certain things, if I, you know, if I tickle your ears, if I rub your belly, you'll roll over. You won't even look at, we have this Liberty score at Conservative Review, where all we do is we just track your votes on a rolling basis on every issue. And in my next book, Truth Bombs, you won't believe how many F Liberty scores are from Red states. I'm not talking blue states where you were lucky to get elected as a Republican or even swing states like Iowa where we live that are basically 50-50 states. I'm talking John Cornyn at Texas. His liberty score is an F. I'm talking Lindsey Graham at South Carolina. His liberty score, F. Great sound bites, though. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that in a second. Mississippi has two, might be the most conservative state in the union. It's two senators. Well, Thad Crocker's gone now, but it's two senators, Cochran and Wicker, Fs. Will you find if 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 would would you find F liberal scores from a Democrat in Oregon? Would you find that, Todd? Oh no! Oh, never in a million years. In fact, guys, you won't find that from a Democrat in like Ohio, a swing state. You won't find that from a Democrat who gets elected in you know some urban district in Texas. You won't get an F score on their side. They will they will all be A's and B's. You get abortion Barbie in yes, Texas. Yes, yes, you do. We we are getting F scores from the guys wearing our uniform in the red states where they don't they they don't even have to pretend to be moderate to get elected. And what you're watching with Lindsey Gramnesty right now is a great example of this. See, Lindsey Gramnesty, everybody everybody jumped on his bandwagon a couple of years a couple of weeks ago when he went off on the Brett Kavanaugh thing. And I've seen this before. We all jumped on Chris Christie's bandwagon when he insulted some teacher union hacks at a, at a town hall on YouTube when he first got elected. We all jumped on Trey Gowdy's bandwagon when he pulled Hillary Clinton's pantsuit down over Benghazi, right? And then every time we've ever needed Trey Gowdy to actually 
stand up to the system for us or or make a tough vote for us. He always votes with the establishment in the swamp every time, every single time, every time. But if but if if I grab the average conservative on the street and said, "Hey, what do you think of Trey Gowdy? What kind of answer do you think I'd get?" Amazing. He's awesome, and he's. His, his voting fights, record, man. yeah, and his voting record is it reeks of mediocrity. If it was a cologne, it would be mediocrity. But Trey Gowdy, that's what it would be. Well, Lindsey Graham's Liberty Score is an F. It's been an F for years. It's why he earned the name Lindsey Gramnesty. But right now, he is—he's a matinee idol on our side. Now today, he's out there on Fox, trashing Elizabeth Warren. And her fake Native American status. And again, everybody on our side, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I love the new Lindsey Graham. Ain't the new Lindsey Graham. Because you know what he was doing before he started trashing uh, Elizabeth Warren? You know what he was pimping? He's pimping more amnesty for y'all. So he's pimping amnesty in the same interview we're all fetting where he's trashing Elizabeth Warren. See, what's happening is Lindsey Graham-Nisty, who is up for re-election next year, and, and the last time that he ran in 2014, he faced five primary challengers. Five. Okay? What he has figured out now, what he has figured out, Steve, you sound cyna- c- cynical. You, what you call cynicism, I call awareness. What Lindsey Graham-Nisty has figured out, guys, is that if he provides these cheap-ass, clickbaity. Uh, headlines for us. Conservative media will let him get away with voting with Nancy Pelosi on every issue we care about because we want to be able to own the libs. That's what he's figured out. This, there's no... The, the guy. The guy's second testicle didn't drop any more than he ever had a first one. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. He just got pissed off two weeks ago that one of his bushy boys got the, you know, grinder treatment they usually give to our people. And look at, look at, look at, look at what it, the way he, look at the first thing he said when he had his rant at the Kavanaugh hearing two weeks ago. I said up here, I voted yep. for Lin- Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. Yep. <laughs> he's basically, what he's telling you is, you know, hey man, where's our Senate decorum? I voted for every pagan progressive you threw up here. In order to, because of Senate decorum, we throw up one of our hacks, we, who we all know is no vote against Roe v. Wade and is the guy that created the blueprint that John Roberts utilized to save Obamacare. And you guys are treating him up here like we nominated Amy Coney Barrett and Robert Bork. That's, that's not how the rules are played. Hey, we, we surrender to you. We, we, we knife our base. And then when we put one of, one of our guys... For his, you know, for his reward for serving the swamp, in this case, Brett Kavanaugh, you guys dutifully sign on. Those are the rules around here. That's how we do things up here in the upper chamber. You guys are violating the rules of engagement. That's what he's upset about. That's what he's upset about. He's butthurt that they were doing this to his guy when he's just fine when they're doing it to one of ours. And he's helped them do it to one of ours many times over the years. And now he's not on your team. He's never been on your team. And barring any kind of spiritual transformation, he's never going to be on your team. But he's figured out the Republicrat game. If if I just give you clickbaity sound bites, Orrin Hatch is doing it right now in Utah. He's out on Twitter right now trolling Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. You know what I'm going to do right now out of curiosity? 
you guys think about it. I'm going to I'm going to Google this right here in real time right now. All right. Orrin Hatch Liberty score. Okay. Give me you get guys. Give me your guesses on what you oh. think Orrin Hatch's Liberty score is right now at conservative review. All right. Tell uh, me what you think it is. Twenty eight percent. I'll say, well, it's a grade, it's a letter grade, right? Well, it, or it's a percent it, but, that has a letter grade attached yeah. to it. I'll say somewhere in the C-ish range. You think it's really? in the C-ish range? Uh, I, I'm i prepared for it not to be, but I'm going to go give him the benefit of the doubt. He's what did, from Utah, after all. What did you say it was, Aaron? I, I think it's 28%. I'm pretty certain it's an F. Aaron is too optimistic. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> You're a Republican Party, ladies and gentlemen. I'm looking at it right now. It's right here on my screen. You can see it, right? Yeah. So here's Mike Lee, who's the only Mike Lee is the only 100% Liberty Score guy in the Senate for conservative review right now. He's the only 100%er. And the other senator, Orrin Hatch, is at 24%. Nice. Well done, Aaron. 24% of the time, and Orrin like, Hatch can, votes with us. Can I add some context as well to this? Because unless I'm mistaken or things have changed, the Liberty Scorecard does not weight um, issues of uh, of uh, moral conservatism no. very heavily. And you can look at that one of two ways. Maybe if it did, then they'd have better scores. But name me one Republican who hasn't run on the platform of Cutting waste, fraud, and abuse. All that other stuff, and they still suck at it. That's, that is a screaming indictment. Yeah, our, for, our, our algorithm, we don't do key votes like a lot of the other organizations do. It is a rolling average on, on comprehensive conservative voting record, and, it, and it, 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 it's your last 50 votes on any issue of any conservative significance, from immigration to the budget to life, defunding Planned Parenthood, et cetera. Orrin Hatch is at 24%. 24% of the time on the last 50 votes he's made in the Senate that matter, he has voted with us. Lindsey Graham, I'm looking at his score right now, 32%. 32%. You know, the, the old Ronald Reagan line, the person who's my 80% friend is not my 20% enemy. What about the person who's your 32% friend? What do you think that guy is? What do you, what, if, if the person who's your, I agree the person who's your 80% friend. Now, it depends on what's in the other 20%, right? It does. Like, so Todd, if a guy walked up to you and said, Listen, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay off all your debt, including your mortgage, right? You you give me a list of ten things you want, okay? I'm gonna give you any eight of them in exchange for the two things I want, which is um I want to I want to your wife and your daughters. Yeah, I want your wife and daughters. Uh, no, yeah, yeah to do what I want with. But hey, he's your eighty percent friend, right? So it kind of depends on what's in that 20%. Indeed. But in general, we would agree, depending on an extreme circumstance like that, we would agree the person who's your 80% friend in general you pr probably, is probably, probably is not your 20% enemy, right? What about the person who's only your 32% friend? What, what is he? Is that a friend at all? Probably. What not. about a person who's your 24% friend, Aaron? Is that a friend at only all? Only if they carry the magic R after their name. Then they are. And then they are. Yes. Along those lines, can I ask you for what I think is a trickier diagnosis? Mm -hmm. Because I put this question out, the top 10 to our Facebook friends, and mm -hmm. give them an opportunity to chime in. Uh, this from Jill Steins Hamilton. For this, she put Marco Rubio. What do you think about that? I, I think that's a great example because yeah. Marco Rubio, uh, Tim Scott, the other senator from South Carolina, they right now have the same Liberty score, 77%. So that's roughly 80%, right? So what I would say about both Tim Scott and Marco Rubio is um, when I need someone to charge a hill, 
when I need someone to get into the cultural bunker with, right? I'm probably not calling them, or at least they wouldn't be in the first list of names I'm going to call, okay? But if they want to join me, I don't view them as an enemy either. I'm not suspicious of them. Does well, that does make that sense? mean they're not full-on Republicrats? Because that's I think we need to clear up. Yeah, I would say they're not full-on Republicrats. They're probably just more moderate on some issues than than you and I would be. All right, the Republicrat is the guy that builds a conservative reputation, and you look at his voting record, and it's f. He, Lindsey Graham and Orrin Hatch are voting more often with Charles Schumer. This is documented. Yes. They're voting more off, far. It's fact that's not even close. They're voting far more often with Charles Schumer than they are Mike Lee, and it's not even close. And if the the one thing about this entire topic, though, somebody keeps voting for Mitch McConnell, somebody keeps voting for Lindsey Graham. A lot of somebody's, maybe even us and and people watching right now, keep voting for these guys. Yep. Um, because they figured out the game that they can play. They figured out. How they can do just enough to trick uh, and to sucker you in to their vote or to your vote again. That's the most frustrating thing about this entire and then conversation. It, it, and then if you flip the script, if you asked a lot of conservatives we think of Ben Sass right now, they'd be like, I wish he'd support the president more. Yeah. You, know what, you know what his Liberty Score voting record is at Conservative Review? It's close to 100. 90%. He's at 90. So if you asked most conservatives right now, straight up, who's more popular with you, Lindsey Graham or Ben Sass? The answer is going to be what? Right now? Right now. Lindsey, Lindsey Graham. Graham. Well, one guy votes with you the stuff that matters the most 32% of the time. The other guy votes with you the stuff that matters most 90% of the time. But maybe that's not what matters most. Owning the libs, making me feel good. That's maybe what matters most. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show. That would be me here on CRTV and The Blaze. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. Let us know what you think about what we think as we embark on our number two. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email us. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Speaking of Facebook, Todd is doing the daily chat in the thread that is pinned right at the top of my Facebook wall if you want to take part. Uh, just look up Steve Dace on Facebook. That's D-E-A-C-E. We're continuing our conversation uh, as we go through sort of your freshman orientation for our new viewers and listeners here on The Blaze. This week, Steve Dace Show 101. And this week, we're looking at the Ten Commandments of Political Warfare. And we only got into commandment number one so far because this one takes the rest of these you're going to kind of get once we lay them out. But this one is such a paradigm shift from what you're used to. That this very first commandment, never trust Republicrats, that we've been talking about, I think takes more detail. And just to put a, a bow on this, and I didn't even realize it until right as we were going to the first hour, uh, end of the hour break. So we talked about how right now, if you ask the average conservative on the street, who do you like more, Ben Sass or Lindsey Graham? Assuming they know who both these guys are. Because they see Lindsey Graham out there supporting President Trump, most conservatives right now would be thinking, I like this Lindsey Graham, right? And his Liberty score, do you guys remember what it was? 34. 34%. That's his, the last 50 votes on issues from economics to morality to immigration, the border, military, et cetera. We chronicle all of this at Conservative Review. You can click on their voting record. We'll give you a PDF that documents their votes. Okay. And we don't weight it on on one slate of issues like, you know, a group like Club for Growth, for example. They're not going to score what someone votes on, uh, you know, 
trainees in the military. They're going to score on what someone grows, votes on pro-growth. We're looking at, at full-spectrum conservatism here. And in his last 50 votes in the U.S. Senate, Lindsey Graham has voted with us 34% of the time. Ben Sass has voted with us 90% of the time. But right now, the perception is Lindsey Graham is with us and Ben Sass is not. Deb Fisher is the Democratic senator from Nebraska. She's been in office for five years. Okay. Would you like to know what her liberty score is? No. <laughs> Aaron's worked here long enough to know what he's being set up for a disappointment, right? You know it's coming, don't you? You know it, yeah. Orrin, Hat- Orrin Hatch now from Utah, which gives us the great Mike Lee with the only, Mike Lee has the only 100% liberty score in the U.S. Senate, which probably doesn't surprise anybody. You're, they were probably shocked to learn that Orrin Hatch had a 24% score, which means 76% of the time, Orrin Hatch votes with Chuck Schumer. And not us. 76% of the time, guys. Well, Deb Fisher is the Democratic senator from Nebraska. Her Liberty score is 64%. 64%. Are we having fun yet? Is her current Liberty score 40 points higher? 40 points higher has, than Orrin Hatch's? 30 points higher a, than Lindsey Graham's. She may as well be Braveheart sitting there with her bowels. You freedom! Yes. Compared to Orrin Hatch. Yes. <laughs> we suck at this. Okay, that that's the 11th commandment. We suck at this. That's kind okay? of the parenthetical title to this show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like somebody tweeted to me today and copied the blaze on it. I, I don't know what it is. I listened to the Steve Day show for the first time yesterday and I don't get it. I, why does anybody like this? I'm like, we don't get it either. Right? Kind of like, no one's more shocked. They're still paying us to do this than we are. So we get we we sign off and we're like, fool them again, right? All right, commandment number two. All right, now you're going to see there are several of these commandments Donald Trump does well, and it's not a coincidence because he endorsed the book. Okay, this one in particular. If anything, you might even go too far. But that, that's why when he goes too far here, our base will support him because they're used to Republicans not even coming close to going far enough. And you always kind of think, yeah, it, it's, I'd rather have somebody goes too far destroying the other side than not far enough, right? If I got to err on the side of, of caution or collateral damage, I'll err on the side of collateral damage. So commandment number two, never attack what you're not willing to kill. Never. If you're not willing to kill it politically, then don't attack it. You'll get no points for showing any restraint. None. And and see, now we're getting into the stuff you guys, if you're astute, and most of you are, if you're watching us, you're get, we're getting the stuff you're like, I get this. I've seen this a lot. Okay? Tell me, because tell me if you've seen this one before. The Republican gets up and says, well, you know, I don't want to question the motives. Or like John McCain, the late John McCain. Remember when he criticized a lot of conservative radio in 2008? for mentioning that Barack, that Obama's name was Barack Hussein Obama. And he essentially said that, you know, that's out of bounds, it's racist, using his name as racist, apparently, okay? And this is where they'll get up and they'll say, uh, you know, I don't want to question the motives of my Democratic opponent. I, I'm, I'm sure that they want what's best for the country. As they then proceed to give the Democratic opponent half of what they asked for, or they're about to ask for in their speech, and then the Democratic opponent, because you didn't give him the other half, will then get up and say, 
you're a racist, misogynistic, homophobic bigot. I think, I think it was like three minutes after John McCain became the presumptive nominee in 2008. The same New York Times that loved him when he was the maverick. He was the maverick. They loved the maverick. Ran a splashy headline about him uh, cheating on Cindy McCain and having a mistress. Do you remember that? Yeah. I think it was like five. It might have been 10 minutes after he clinched the, clinched the nomination, but it wasn't, wasn't much more than that. I mean, the same Democrats who were lauding him when he was lying in state earlier this year after he passed away were the same ones who told you that uh, he was the most anti-woman president that ever ran because he wanted to take abortion away, which wasn't true, by the way. John McCain was not in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade. This is the game. Now, Trump is not playing this game. And this is one of the things he does the best. And he may even go too far. Check that. He does go too far. (laughs) Okay. But this is the thing that has, this is the reason that this commandment is number two is because um, if you're not willing to do this, you can't ever put the, uh, you can't use any of the other commandments that will put the other side on the defensive that will allow you to make the serious argument based of reason and logic you want to make because you won't break through the initial line. All right, you're not you're not you're not going to break through their 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 initial line, their fortif- their initial fortifications. You will not break through if if you can't do this right here. Then you you Todd, you won't get to the rest of the stuff where you really want to try to win the arguments that determine you know the direction a culture goes. Well, and you'll want to know that it only took two bullet points for you to find a true day show fanboy. On Facebook, Sam Cordry, his answer to number two was, in fact, before you spoke, the John McCain 2008 yeah. campaign. He gets us, man. Well yeah. done, Sam. Bravo. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, Mitt Romney brought gay marriage to Massachusetts, literally brought it to Massachusetts. Uh, he nominated open homosexuals to the bench in Massachusetts, uh, including uh, one that was the activist that overturned the state's sodomy laws. Uh, and he would give frequent interviews when he was a gubernatorial candidate and governor there to a, a pro-gay uh, publication called Bay Windows. Um, when he ran for Senate in the 90s, uh, he tried to run as more pro-abortion and pro-gay rights than Ted Kennedy and said he opposed Reagan Bush. Um, then he refused to eat a chicken sandwich when the whole Chick-fil-A thing came up about their defense of marriage, right? And... Yet when he was the the minute he became the Republican nominee, uh, he was an anti LGBT bigot. Despite all of those things, with binders full of women, with binders full of women, yes, exactly. Yeah, and what didn't wasn't there um wasn't wasn't there a candidate in the primary from Minnesota that you gave a bunch of oppo research to on Tim Mi- Pawlenty? Tim Pawlenty, yeah. yeah. And then he he came out with that in the debate, and then um, dropped out a week later. Yeah, yeah. What had happened is Tim Pawlenty had come to Iowa for the 2012 Iowa caucus cycle and it came and started organizing our state before anybody else. And he couldn't gain any traction. And Sarah Huckabee, she wasn't married yet. Sarah Huckabee was uh, helping to run his campaign. And because I had known her dad from the 08 campaign and knew her, she called me up and said, Hey, can you, can I bring Tim by your office to kind of, you know, we're trying to get him to understand how Iowa works. And maybe if it's from somebody outside of the campaign, he might basically might listen, you know, so they brought him by the office and, and, so he was paying his people not to listen to them. That's great. Mr. That that Mr. happens. Want to be president? That happens. Most most politicians pay consultants to tell them what they want to be true. 
has been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it all makes sense Guys, now. I, 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 do you want me to lie to you? <laughs> do you want me to lie to you? I'm starting to get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. So she brings Palenti by. This is about a week or two before the straw poll, which is the, you know, the event where the initial people usually get knocked out. Uh, which is why we didn't have it this time because the Republican Party I know. <laughs> didn't like the fact we kept knocking like Tim Pawlenty's out. Please start lying. Yeah. Yes. So, but they still. This is the last year we had the straw poll, which is the 2012 cycle. And so, um, I basically told Pawlenty in my office, I'm like, um, "You're running as Mitt Romney, but you're not as well known, well funded, and well liked as him. You don't. You don't have a base. I mean, there's no reason to vote for you. You're not as conservative as Rick Santorum or, uh, you know, uh, pick some of the other candidates." Um, and, and you're running as a, a knockoff version of Mitt Romney when he's more polished, he's more articulate, he's better looking, he's more accomplished. He's, he's a better version of the candidate you want to be. You got to knock him out. So I gave him some of the oppo research on Mitt Romney on where he was on cultural issues as governor that I just gave you guys kind of a, a you know, a cliff notes version of, and I said, this is what you have to expose. And so they had a debate in Sioux city about a week later, right before the straw poll. And he went on the air and verbatim used my oppo research verbatim and then after the straw poll he finished a distant third dropped out and endorsement romney for president so that's aaron which you're alluding to right yeah uh, yeah and yeah. i mean this 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 commandment presupposes what that we actually know who the opponent is yes um if you know if and, and if you imply that you have an opponent that would also imply what that there are differences. Yeah. And then you have to know those differences so you can actually do an effective job attacking. All right. Uh, these, these, I mean, there's a lot packed into that, but you would be surprised as we've been laying out and the Liberty Scorecard conversation as well. There's a lot of people who are in Washington, D.C. right now who either don't believe what we believe or don't know what we believe or, and, and say that they do. That's that, and they're called Republicans. And they're called Republicans. Yeah, I mean the biggest difference between the Mitt Romney and, and Donald Trump campaigns, and the biggest difference is one, Mitt Romney ran against a lot better candidate. I think we all recognize that Barack Obama was a lot better candidate than Hillary Clinton. The other difference, though, is Donald Trump was willing to do what it took to win. Mitt Romney was not. Mitt Romney's campaign was structured to win without appealing directly to his base. They did this on purpose. So that when he got elected, he would not have to owe his base anything. That's why they didn't eat the chicken sandwich with Chick-fil-A. That's why after the first debate where Romney, remember Romney went after Obama hard oh, yes. on America's founding and the cultural issues and he destroyed him. Remember that? Yes. And then the next two debates, he kept saying, I agree with the president over and over again. Because yep. the whole premise of the Romney campaign was to prove the Republican establishment wanted to prove it could win a national election without appealing to its base. So that when it got into office, there wouldn't... They would, there wouldn't be, you guys are pissed off that we promised you we were going to repeal Obamacare and we didn't. They don't owe you anything. They wanted to banish us to the kiddie table. Well, they tried that and four and a half million people that voted for John McCain didn't vote for Willard. Didn't work. And he lost. Donald Trump not only had a weaker candidate, but he was like, dude, you guys want Rover v. Wade over? Donald Trump was like, just, dude, I, just tell me what I got to say and do to win. I'm a businessman. That's all. And Mitt Romney was a businessman too, but one guy was merciless and the other guy was as well, but toward you and I, and that's the difference. Trump was willing to embrace his base to win. 
Mitt Romney was not. What does our Chris Pandolfo, our colleague at Conservative Review, what does he say? It's not that Republicans are gutless. It's that they're not willing to do what it takes to win. And those are two totally different things. Two totally different things. Commandment number three. Never accept the premise of your opponent's argument. Never. Never. What does this mean? We don't use terms like sexual orientation. There's there's no such thing. There's a sin orientation. That's it. That's all. That, these are made up terms. We don't use terms like pro-choice. They don't call us pro-life. Why would we call them pro-choice? We should use anti-life. If we're pro-life and they have the opposite view, what would that make them? If, if English isn't your second language and it's the one you speak on a regular basis, Todd, what would that make them? Not. Yeah, anti-life. If we're pro and they're against... That would mean they're anti-life. Like we shouldn't use their language like on anything. And we use it all the time, but we shouldn't. We, th- that, that is, at least on a subconscious level, an assenting to the premise of your opponent's argument. You know, philosophy and argumentation have laws like any other science does. And, and one of the laws of argumentation is whoever's, whichever side's premise is accepted will always win the argument. It may, sometimes it'll be instantly, sometimes it'll be later on down the road. But look at the healthcare argument, for example. When Republicans attacked Obamacare in the last eight or nine years during its, its legislative and implementation phase, they attacked it politically under the guise, we can't afford it. So would that mean that Obamacare, let's say we weren't $5 trillion in debt and printing money off a copy machine. Let's say we weren't doing those things. Let's say we had a real commodities-based currency. And when the commodity runs out, there's no more currency. It's tied directly to that, you know, like a real economy. And let's say we weren't running trillions of dollars in deficits, but we were baseline budgeting in the black. By that logic, socialized medicine is, hey. Yeah, so if we could afford it, would that mean Obamacare was moral now? Would that mean it's constitutional now? Of course not on both fronts. No, no, but you've already given away your argument. Right. Because when you make the argument, well, we can't afford it, the single mom is being told by the Democrats, how can we afford not to? She can't get health care for her kids. You lost. And you I, lost. I, one of the most heinous examples of this being violated are the so-called fetal pain bills or laws. Because you're saying, yes, that thing in, in the womb, yeah, it can feel pain. So uh, obviously there's some physiology there. There's a heartbeat there. If there's a physiology there, that thing is alive. But it's still okay. It's still okay to murder it. Yes. In, in the womb. Just so long as you maybe uh, apply some, oh, apply some painkillers, so it doesn't feel any pain while it goes. That is a heinous, a heinous example of this, and it has those those types of bills have wide support from a lot of people in the pro life movement. You guys remember one of the things we talked about yesterday is a good summation, bottom line summation of where America is at politically and culturally is that the left has the cultural influence, the what the right craves, and the right has the political power that cult, the, the left wants, right? But we also talked about that eventually whoever has the cultural power will then acquire the political power they want because that's where the true power lies is in culture. That's where you're terraforming your existence as a people, your natural habitat. Well, one of, one of the things we talked about in that conversation is we mentioned how many elections around the country Republicans are winning. Since Obamacare's implementation, something like 1,107, I think is the number, Democrats have lost elections nationwide. 
Right now, we have more Republicans in elected office than we've had since before the Great Depression. There are Republican governors, well, at least for the next three weeks in Illinois. He's going to get cream, Ronner, because he's a terrible governor. But you have Republican governors in Maryland, Massachusetts, and Illinois at the same time. And the last time that happened is when Ward was originally hard on the beaver last night. It's like 1955. So Republicans are winning all kinds of elections. But are any of the arguments affirmatively the stuff we're for? No. No, none of them are. All of the arguments are how much of what the other side has already done to cloward Piven America are we going to are we willing to permit to remain? And how much more are we willing to tolerate? Those are the arguments. The premise of every argument is from their perspective. Every argument. No, no issue in America. You know what? Challenge me. Think about it for a second. Can you guys think of a single issue right now in this country that is being argued from our premise? Oh, almost never. That's why Mac who does on Facebook uh, said, and rightly so in a more generalized sense, almost any time <laughs> conservatives interact with the media. Yes. That this premise is. Yes. In play. I, yes. I would have said, I would have said uh, maybe, I don't know, two years ago, um, maybe as, as soon as two years ago. Uh, the Second Amendment issue is still argued from from our terms. Um, that is that, that might think, be the one. That, that is, might be the one. I th- but I think it's starting to slip away in some instances as well. As you start to see, well, you know, uh, we need to have uh, mental health ch- uh, checks to see who can uh, buy, purchase fire, who administers those, who determines what mm-hmm. mental health. The same people who are encouraging drag queen story hour, uh, those people, no thanks. So even that issue, I think, is starting to slip. It's still solidly. Uh, the, the debate is still solidly happening and solidly taking place in our favor. But I think even that one's starting to slip. I'm glad you brought that up because I would make the case, and I, I talk about this in the next book, Truth Bombs, it comes out January 15th. I would make the case that the only issue that we have moved the country demonstrably to the right on in the last quarter century is the Second Amendment. And it's because it's the it's the one argument that we have done the best job of not giving up the premise and arguing for. But on every everything else, everything else is done on the premise of the opponent's argument. Yesterday, Scott Walker. You know, it's funny, when I wrote Rules for Patriots in 2014, when I originally turned in the manuscript, the publisher was like, are you endorsing Scott Walker for president in 2016 already? And I said, why? And they're like, because virtually every affirmative example you give in your book is is what he's doing in Wisconsin. Remember when we were talking about oh, that yeah. at the time? And so I actually had to go back and rewrite some stuff because the original manuscript, I didn't realize it, you know, but when I went and looked at the manuscript again, the publisher was right. The The original version was kind of a a hymn. It was kind of a love letter to, to uh, you know, a sonnet to, to Scott Walker. Yesterday, he tweets out, um, essentially, he's for universal health care. And that everything ought to be covered as a pre-existing condition because he's had pre-existing conditions in his family as well. Now, set aside whether that is a good argument or not is really irrelevant right now. If you're a Republican tweeting that out three weeks before the election, one of two things has occurred. A, you're getting terrible advice because you don't understand the electorate. Or B, you're resigned to your fate that you're going to lose and so you're trying to virtue signal for the mainstream media cable news bookers in case Fox doesn't have space for you. You want to make sure CNN and MSNBC do. That's what you're doing. Because anybody, anybody, anybody is a tough word. 
I'm going to use it. Anybody. There is not a single homo sapien registered to vote in Wisconsin right now. Because we're not, Scott, is he new? Is he a new candidate? We don't know. Now, this is, this is, if you count referendums when they try to recall oh, him, right. by the way, I believe it's like his fifth campaign for governor in the last eight years. Okay. Which makes it clear if anybody should understand why you yes. don't deviate, and yes. yet he still did. Yes. The fact that the last two weeks before the election, he wants to talk about pre existing conditions being covered. He, you lost. You lost. You lost the argument because that's their argument. That's the argument that gets their people to the polls. There is nobody in Wisconsin that's going to be like, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to vote for Scott Walker again. But, you know, now that he wants universal health care for everybody with pre-existing conditions, I've totally changed my mind. If you were voting on pre-existing conditions, you were already voting for his Democratic opponent, period. Bottom line, period. And you talk about the double-minded man all the time. Yes. I mean, the very same math that he applied to uh, fighting uh, the public sector union thing mm-hmm. also applies to Obamacare. It's yep. the same math. When, when I was on the Cruz campaign, we do our strategy calls in the last primary. So I'll give you guys a little inside baseball. And one of the things that happened is the Jeb Bush campaign came to us and offered us some oppo research because, you know, everybody's running to, to be the candidate of a particular niche first. It's like an NCAA tournament. You got to win your sub-regional before you start facing the teams later on in the bracket, right? And so right now you may be like, you know, we'd rather play that team later on. So we kind of hope they win. But we're not playing them right now, so we may have some film, and we'll give it to them. You know what I'm saying? It's Survivor. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, we're not playing Jeb Bush yet. We're, Jeb Bush is playing Marco Rubio right now. We're playing Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, Bobby Jindal. That's who we're playing right now. So we got to beat those guys, okay? And um, Jeb Bush came to us and offered us some oppo research on Rubio's previous support for cap and trade, which is a heinous anti-capitalistic policy that the global warming cult wants. And we had this conference call on the cruise campaign where we were discussing whether we were going to use it or not. And when they asked me what I thought, I said I would not use it. One, I don't know, you know, the reason Jeb wanted us to put it out there is because he didn't want to get his hands dirty him doing it. But I'm like, that's not one of our, that, that issue doesn't move our base. What we want to do every time, because this was also the time that the Rubio and Cruz campaigns are kind of going at each other a little bit over the immigration issue. And I'm like, we don't. We want to always debate Rubio on immigration, because even when he's right, whenever the argument happens, he loses because of the gang of eight. He can't win the argument. It, it's a lost argument every time it comes up. So even if he, even if we think he is scoring rhetorical points against us, it's a little bit like if if you're playing if you're a, if you're a Bo Ryan Wisconsin team, and you want to win sixty to fifty four, and you're playing an up tempo team, and you might be beating him in the first half. You might, you know, at the last TV timeout of the first half, you might be ahead 44 to 34, winning by 10 points. But is that the pace of the game you want to play? Right, no. I understand. And so if you keep playing that pace for another half, or you probably, eventually, because this is the game they want to play, they're probably right. going to beat you. You normally don't win games that get into the 90s. Yes. So even if Rubio was scoring a couple points against us on the issue right now, the longer the conversations about immigration, the worse it is for him because of the photo op of the gang at eight. It's a kill shot to him every time it comes up. And so I'm like, absolutely, we shouldn't change topic to talk about this. We want the whole damn thing to be about immigration every time we can. He can't win that argument. Likewise, when the whole thing about natural born citizen came up and how nuts people that got over that. So if you actually believe both of your parents had to be natively born 
in America before you are a natural born citizen constitutionally. Everybody congratulate Millard Fillmore for being the first president of the United States. It's just dumbassery. But it, there's a but there's a wing of our base that gets obsessed with these like, you know, conspiracy notions. And Trump ties into that wing really well. And so he kept wanting to bring up the natural born thing. And, and likewise, I, then when we'd have our strategy calls on that, I'd be like, we need to get off this issue as fast as we can. Yeah. It's a loser for us. All right. So sometimes whenever the premise of your opponent's argument, even if you're winning the argument at that time, the longer you use their premise and accept it, you are whistling past the graveyard. You're literally, you got a shovel, man. Okay. And yeah, right now you might be smacking them over the head with it, but in between smacks, you're digging your grave. And sooner or later, you'll dig enough of that grave, you'll fall in. You cannot accept the premise of your opponent's argument. Thoughts on that, gentlemen? Well, of course we agree. And uh, because um, uh, one of our uh, uh, followers uh, pointed out the issue of journalism, it's why we talk about on the show that journalism is magical and uh, not at all uh, broken. Because um, that when we sit there as conservatives, and my goodness, it has been exhausting to watch the humana, humana, humana uh, that comes uh, when a you know like you know, some like twenty five year old reporter on CNN uh, corners somebody like and somebody that right now is vying for conservative leadership, uh, Jim Jordan, uh, fairly recently uh, on issues as they re- relate uh, to marriage and things like that, and they sit there and they try to triangulate. They're always baiting you. Uh, to either look weak or to get the mm-hmm. sign bite that they run over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. that's one thing. Why did it take, of all people, a guy who we don't really think is a conservative judge like Brett Kavanaugh yeah. to show us when what happens, the power of what happens when you reject the premise of an argument? And the, the, the line of questioning that came from the Democratic senators may have well come from the press. You saw how they worked in tandem. You've got to stop doing that. Uh, another example of this as well is uh, anytime you see a headline saying um, so-and-so Republican just shrunk the national deficit, there's still a deficit. Um, that's not good. It's not the same as the national debt. Just look at, look at headlines and look at stories a little bit deeper, and you'll find that this is violated. I, I let out a, a little um, a gasp or groan when you first brought this up, Steve, because this happens all the time, every single day. Our people who we send to Washington, who pretend to be conservatives, the Republicans or not, even the moderates, they violate this every single day that ends in Y. We're having every single uh, argument or conversation, fake argument, really is just a fake argument from the premise that the left wants. We have to stop that. And that starts by critically thinking about every single issue that comes up. When we accept the premise of our opponent's argument, man, we are giving them power over us. The spoken word has power. Scriptures say God spoke the universe into existence. The scriptures say that God's son is the word of God in the flesh. There is power in the word, power in the words those of us made in God's image use. When we verbalize the premise of our opponent's arguments, we give them power over us. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show. 
Got to do a little quick uh, fact check here. Correct an error. Uh, we mentioned Deb Fisher's Liberty score at the top of the show. And I thought she was a Republican, but there's a typo on our site at Conservative Review. Um, and I know how meticulously we check everything there. So I thought, well, I don't know. I can't name all 100 senators off the top of my head, you know. So I could see, you know, a state like Nebraska is not quite as purple as Iowa, but I could see someone in a rural state if they are a conservative Democrat getting elected. So maybe that's true. She's actually a Republican, so we should mention that. So in reality, Deb Fisher, although that that mistake actually plays into what we were saying about Republicrats, because the fact that she is um, at only a 64% score as a Republican in a state that tends to be pretty reliably Republican. That's another example of the very Republican phenomenon we were talking about. So she was a good example to use just in reverse. Point okay. of order accepted. All right, so now that that's been corrected. All right, let's continue with our uh, breakdown of the Ten Commandments of Political Warfare. Here's number four. Never surrender the moral high ground. And Aaron alluded to this earlier with the pro-life movement. Many of the arguments the pro-life movement makes are the same arguments from a premise standpoint that the uh, murder incorporated movement makes. They make they make quality of life arguments. Those are utilitarian as opposed to sanctity of life arguments, which are theistic. That the idea that life is sacred because it comes from God. And, it, and, and if it didn't come from God, it probably wouldn't be all that sacred. It would just be a, a, would be a byproduct of random processes and therefore, you know, may the strong survive and might makes right. The reason we don't do those things is because life is um, made is the imago day. It's made in the image of God. It comes from God. But most of your the, the the pro-life political activism of my lifetime has been on the quality of life. Meaning, what the 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 late Bob Dornan, B one Bob, the the bombastic great conservative congressman from California, used to say, whenever it ends with and then you can kill the baby, it's not a pro-life bill. I don't know that I would go that far but the the spirit of what he's saying is right on the money you know a, a lot of times we're like we agree it's a baby life begins a conception but you can kill it until we think it can feel pain well you're making why why did why can we kill it until it can feel pain so it wasn't alive before that point see that you're not making a sanctity of life argument you're making a quality of life argument if you asked abortionists why they're for abortion they, they, of course, are going to give you the reproductive freedom line, but they're also going to say stuff like, remember when Planned Parenthood's tagline was make every child a wanted child? Remember mm-hmm. that? Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, if a child's going to be born into suffering, if it's going to be unloved, if it's going to have a fetal deformity, et cetera. In other words, the quality of its life isn't worth living. And, you're, and the utilitarian argument is um, that suffering is bad and, and that therefore we should... Um, it's it's humane it's kind to end the suffering of a live being like we would put down a dog who had a you know a heart defect that can't be cured the difference between a dog and a human though is one is made in god's image and the other one is not one has a soul and the other one does not that would be the difference and utilitarian which is a pretty big one yeah utilitarian uh purports that uh you know that that pain is bad while at the same time denying any uh, transcendent uh, tra- transcendent truths like what good and bad actually yes is. and of course from the judeo-christian worldview the messiah jesus is referred to in the old testament in messianic prophecies as the suffering servant suffering for whom who is he suffering for us 
you look at um, Mother Teresa. She suffered for how many decades in Calcutta? Oh. With, with what with what the caste system there said was the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low. A lifetime of doing it, yeah. Yes. So in the Judeo-Christian worldview, suffering, if it is for a righteous cause or if it is to suffer alongside those who also suffer or to suffer for those who you're trying to save from perishing is notable. It's laudable. It's heroic. In the utilitarian mindset, um, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Suffering, it's a waste of time, if not just downright dumb. And so we should do whatever we can to eliminate as much suffering as we possibly can in the world. And can, I want to go back to it because I don't want anybody to think we're cavalier because we bring it up quite a time about this. I want to bring back the chicken sandwich thing. The, With we Mitt Romney? Yeah. The, okay. It's not just a political optics thing. The, this is also the the point here. Uh, it's it, it's about the fact that he didn't need to go full Ezra in the Old Testament. He could have simply said here, I'm a businessman here, and my business, whether it's a conservative owner or your business, whether it's a liberal owner, we cannot have a healthy business climate where all of us are successful if we do this like this. So yes, I'm going to eat this chicken sandwich. It's a He, he could have made any number of moral high ground points yep. uh, that would have benefited a conservative cause, and he couldn't figure out any way to do it. I think, you know, that that set the Guinness Book of World Record for the most restaurant sales in one day in the history of the planet was Chick-fil-A Day in 2012. And I'd venture a guess, I don't know, maybe even a majority of the people that took part in that maybe don't even agree with us on the marriage issue. They're just tired of being told what's acceptable right. to think and say. Here's a, and here's another way you um, you surrender the moral high ground. It's this whataboutism game that we've oh, seen yes. so much yes. over the last couple of years. President Trump says or tweets something totally bat crap insane, and uh, we go back. We go to bat for him because what about Hillary? Because what about so and so fill in the blank Democrat candidate tomorrow? D- Donald Trump could say I'm uh, one uh, one in thirty parts. Um, I don't know Eskimo, and people would make fun of him. Well, you know, just yesterday, Elizabeth. That's what we're talking about here. Not that that's a morality play there. But that's what we're talking about because my guy did something reprehensible. It's okay because your guy did something reprehensible as yes. well. That's how you lose the moral high ground. And we have lost a lot because of whataboutism the last couple of years. And we talked yesterday about the need to win the next generation. There are a few things Aaron's generation hates more than what he just talked about. They detest it. Now, if we're going to bring up whataboutism, let's define what it is and isn't. Whataboutism yeah. is not you exposing the hypocrisy of the opposing argument. That's not what whataboutism is. Whataboutism is exposing the hypocrisy of the opposing argument in order to cover for or justify your own hypocrisy. So for example, Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire, during the last break, I saw him tweet out, you know, I don't like what the president said about Stormy Daniels having a horse face, but I don't understand why anybody who is offended at that didn't get offended when, uh, you know, when she was on national television talking about his mushroom penis. That's not whataboutism. Whataboutism would be if Matt Walsh said, the president can say whatever he wants about Stormy Daniels' physical appearance because she attacked his. That's what whataboutism is. Whataboutism is not exposing the hypocrisy of your opponent. Whataboutism is doing so with the expressed intent of being a hypocrite yourself exactly. and justifying it. That's, exactly. the, that's the thing to understand. All right, next commandment, number five. Reverse the premise of your opponent's argument and use it against him or her. I hate Reagan analogies, not because, I mean, I, 
I, I grew up a Ronald Reagan fanboy, child of the 80s, but I hate Reagan analogies because they're from the 80s. And, and it just seems like the fact that we have to keep using them in 2018 is a sign of just how bad we have sucked at this for the last 30 years, right? You know, like for me, I'm, I got my Michigan gear on, you know? Now, this is some nostalgia for me. Bo, one of Bo's famous from his taglines, the team, the team, the team. And, and here's Jimmy when he was the quarterback for Bo in his latter years, okay? But one of the, as much as I love Bo and that era, and I grew up in that era of Michigan football, I'm kind of I'm, I'm over talking about that era because we kind of have to keep talking about it because the current era hasn't been that good. You know what I'm saying? Sure. You know, and so it's kind of a double-edged sword. But I'm going to use a Reagan analogy because he was masterful at this. One of my all-time favorite Reagan clips. I mean, one of them you guys probably know if you're a little older. Reagan bombed the first debate in the 1984 presidential campaign. It was really bad. And people were like, he's old. He's past his prime. He was the oldest man ever running for president for the second time in a row. And the, the very next debate, I think it was in Louisville, was the second debate. And the first question, the moderator said, hey, Mr. President, you were really heavily criticized for the performance in your last debate. Uh, people thought you were a step slow. Uh, people thought uh, that uh, your critics have said, you know, maybe uh, you should consider that uh, you're too old for the, you know, for the trials and tribulations of this office. And Reagan, without missing a beat, says, well, I want the American people to know that I'm not going to make age an issue in this campaign, which is why I will not stand here and criticize the youth and inexperience of my opponent. And everybody in the auditorium laughed. All the moderators laughed. Mondale laughed. Right. Okay? That's an example. It's what Shakespeare used to call hoisting them from their own petards. And my favorite example of this, of Reagan's, and you can get this clip on YouTube if you look for it. Uh, when, when Sam Donaldson was the chief White House correspondent for ABC back in the day. And it's the early years of the Reagan presidency. And, we, and, and the tax cuts have just been passed. And we're mired in a recession I think this was 81, 82. And um, Sam Donaldson gets up and asks a question. He says, Mr. President, you have sat here and railed against Tip O'Neill, railed against the Democrats, railed against your predecessor and his economic policies uh, for why the economy is struggling to recover during your presidency. Sir, you are the president of the United States. Is there nothing about this that you're responsible for? Good question, actually, right? And Reagan, again, without missing a beat, looks right at him and says, well, Sam, for many years... You're right. I should take responsibility. For many years, I was a Democrat. And so some yes. of this is my fault too. That's what I'm talking about right there. If you can flip it around on them. I've done this when people have, you know, when I've done this on television. I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to have to kind of defer to you on what a lying, sniveling fool is. I mean, you're a Clinton voter, so you probably know more about it than me. All right. When you can do that, when you can turn their premise around and hoist them from it, because not only is it effective, but it's funny effective. And one of the things we're beginning to learn on the right after, after the left has done this to us for years is if it's funny, if you make people laugh, you can be vicious. I totally agree. But I've got one example of this that I've personally used and I'm undefeated at it. And it's sometimes a little scary because you, Steve mentioned yesterday bringing up the issue of, uh, you know, you did a whole scam about uh, running up the score and some people didn't, you know, they just weren't paying attention. Uh, the, you, you mentioned the life issue already. Oh, and any time they want to instantly, and they always do the approach, uh, the pro-abortion movement, the, the baby killing industry, uh, the rape, incest and health of mother. You, you say, okay. 
you and I are king for the day. We get to decide that. I'll, I'll give you that, whatever it is, one, two, three percent. You give me everybody else. It instantly stops the conversation. Yeah, they never take the deal. They never take the deal. Yeah. They won't. Yeah. Because it's not just about those hard cases. And of course, we don't believe in those right hard area. cases on this show, but neither do they. And you can point it out in a second. Yep. Now, this next commandment, number six, is one the Republicans abandon all the time, which is why they're often fighting a two-front war. Never abandon your base unless they're morally wrong. If your base is morally wrong, you know, uh, in the 50s, Dwight Eisenhower abandoned a portion of his base over, de over desegregation. His base was morally wrong. He was right to do what he did, all right? So if your base is morally wrong, then you abandon your base. But short of that, you never abandon your base. Guys, we could do weeks of shows with the examples of this. Okay, I mean, how many, read my lips, no new taxes, and then there were. Okay, we, we have seen this a million times. Because they, they're, they're playing by a different set of morals. Yes. Most, most Republicans. And that's the reason why the first commandment was never trust Republicrats. Because if we had not done that commandment first, you wouldn't have understood why they keep violating this commandment. There, it's... It's not that they're lazy, Bob. It's that they just don't care. One of my favorite movies of all time, Office Space. It's not that they're dumb. They don't agree with you. That's why they do this. Yeah. They abandon their base because they don't agree with you. The reason why, for all of his problems, Trump has base loyalty, none of these national Republicans do, is because he abandons you all the time when it comes to actual policy. But rhetorically, in the arena, he never betrays his base, ever. He always stands with his base against the media, the Democrats. He'll cut deals with them legislatively. He'll sign fake Obamacare repeals and then lie to you that they repealed Obamacare when they didn't. But rhetorically in the arena, he never abandons his base. And these Republicans will do that all the time. Absolutely. And so that's why if you're sitting there wondering election to election, I wonder if I'm being used. Yeah, you are. So if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, it's a you problem. A general good rule of thumb in life in general is if you have to ask, it's about you. <laughs> right. right? Like if you have to ask your wife, how's our relationship going? That means you don't want to ask. If you have to ask your boss, how am I doing my job? You don't probably want to know. If you have to ask, the answer is usually bad, right? That's a general rule of life. If you have to ask, it's probably about you. Commandment number seven. Define your opponent before they define themselves and define yourself before your opponent defines you. Now, this is just basic marketing 101, right? But there's a reason why they keep calling you year after year and decade after decade now, racist, misogynistic, homophobic, bigot, xenophobic bigots, because they're trying to define you, all right? And there's a reason why we have smartly tried to define them all as socialists and using Ocasio-Cortez as the opening to do that, the self, and Bernie Sanders, the self-avowed socialists. Because there's a reason they don't call themselves socialists, but they call themselves progressives. It's the same reason they don't use the word liberal anymore. And the, I mean, the, the, the word liberal, Reagan turned that into literally one of George Carlin's seven dirty words. You, I mean, it became an, you, don't, you didn't want to be one of those people. And so they had to rebrand. We forced them to rebrand. All right, so this is a branding issue because mindshare equals market share and market share equals mindshare. Which one's more important, Steve, market share or mindshare? And the answer is yes. Yes. Particularly in this world of if you can't convince me in 100 and, and or now I guess it's 240 characters or less, right? If you can't convince me in 240 characters or less on Twitter, if you can't convince me in a Facebook headline uh, or status update or a cable news cry-in, I'm bored, I'm out, and I'm done here. Thank you. 
So the branding aspect of this is vitally important. If you want people to believe Planned Parenthood's killing babies, guess what you probably ought to call them? Baby killers, which is why I call them that. And I, I think it's important to note as well, you only you can you really only get to do this really well. Um, commandment number seven, really, you, you only get the excuse to do this if you have at least done a passable job at following the first six commandments yes. in, my, in my mind. Look at Donald Trump. When he announced his uh, candidacy back in 2015, I think it was, immediately he right, went right to immigration. He defined himself uh, very probably backed himself into that, probably didn't know what he was doing, but he was the anti-illegal immigration candidate. And then he went freaking King Kong in some of the early primary debates as well. Um, he's saying to, to Rand Paul, why is this guy here? He's not supposed to be here. He was immediately, he immediately branded himself as I'm the you know law and order type of candidate. He is King Kong, got nothing on me. And then when you go to Lion Ted, Little Marco, um, you know, uh, whatever he had for Jeb, low energy Jeb, immediately he was able to frame those and have some credibility because he was not any of those things, at least in the eye of, of most of his supporters and maybe even the rest of the country as well. I think in some ways Donald Trump did this pretty pretty masterfully back in 2015 and 2016. All right, we have three minutes. Let's get to these last three because they kind of all tie together. Number eight, always make your opponent defend their record and or belief system. You know, St. Peter says we ought to, we always have to have reasons for the hope that we have to be able to defend our beliefs. The Bible doesn't command us, though, to be on the defensive, okay? Make the other side defend why they believe. Make them defend why they think these programs are going to work this generation when they didn't work the last two. Make them defend those things. Number nine, stay on message. We've talked a lot about the parts of these commandments Trump does well. This one he's terrible at. Trips over his own phallus on a daily basis because he's a random ego in motion. When you've got a winning message that, you know, I talked about the cruise strategy calls. One of the things I was also advocating for is we got a winning message, stay on message. When we have a losing message, get off of that message and get on a winning message. Okay. And so this is the commandment Trump does the worst. But the next one, other than the second one we mentioned is probably the one, the, the final one. He does the best. He's always on offense, even when he's wrong. He's always on offense. Offense rallies people. It mobilizes your base. It excites your base. Puts the other side on the defensive. It dispirits them. Play offense whenever possible. And it's always possible if you look at the possibilities. What did we learn today? Quickly, gentlemen, Todd, go. I learned that the fact that you had to write this book uh, just shows uh, how not conservative, at the very least, Team GOP is. Aaron? Yeah, I had a love-hate relationship with today's show. Uh, every time we go through the Ten Commandments of Political Warfare, I love it because there's new st examples to talk about. I hate it because there's new examples of violations <laughs> of this. Well said. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Subscribe to the podcast there on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Leave us a five-star review, review, please. John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.